Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 115 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me to hopefully rescue these dinosaurs from an exploding storyline is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello. It's been a great few weeks having fresh voices come onto the show to join us in the discussion, and we are continuing that this week by inviting, for the first time, friend of the show and writing contributor, Jacob Neff. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Good to have you. Well, with a mixed reaction from fans and critics, we know that uh, you guys are anxious to hear what we think here at Feel and Film. But before we get into that, let's recap uh, each of our weeks. Jacob, let's start with you. What have you been up to this week? Well, uh, leading up to uh, this film, uh, I decided I wanted to be good and prepared for experiencing it. And so I went back through the entire uh, Jurassic Park series and J.A. Bayona's filmography since he was the one directing this one. So that's kept me pretty busy. Did anything stick out? Because I've wanted to do that uh, with this series and I do it for a lot of the movies that we cover. I tend to go back and rewatch everything leading up to that film. But I don't think I've seen Jurassic Park 2 or 3 in... 20 years or something. I, I don't even remember the storylines. Did those hold up for you? Two seems to get worse with every viewing. <laughs> it, uh, I was disappointed the very first time I saw it because I had read the book and the book is arguably even better than the original. Yeah, crazy enough. But uh, the movie was just, it was nothing like the book and it was a huge disappointment. As time went on and I pretty much forgot what how the book was, you know, I'd gone back to it and had found some enjoyment, but then it was it was right back, you know, time sense has just gone back down. It's a pretty mediocre movie. It's got some great uh, scenes of suspense, but the whole story doesn't hold together. Characters don't make sense. But three, I I think it's a great tight little action thriller um, with a touch of com- comedic relief from William H Macy. I think it holds together really well. It's it's a different tone. I mean, all the movies are kind of focused on a different tone than all the other ones. And like I said, that w- that one really holds up as a, as a taut thriller for me. As far as like the overall narrative between those three, um, with, I guess, The Lost World aside, would you say that if I were to watch Jurassic Park and then watch Jurassic Park 3, even if it's tonally different, would it feel cohesive going from one to the other? Because I know that The Lost World was without Grant. It focused mainly on Ian Malcolm as our main kind of person and his daughter. Would, would Jurassic Park 3 be an, um, an interesting segue from the first one? Like, could you enjoy the third one after watching the first one? I think so. I mean, it opens with the boating parasailing accident where they land on, land on the island. And uh, it perfectly makes sense that these rich people going to this... They're supposed to be rich, but <laughs> anyway. You know, going to this island to rescue their uh, their child and then grant being uh connived into joining the expedition it all it, it works for me and the way it's all it's tight it's a 90 minute thriller it's not about the the whole uh you know awe and wonder and and intelligence of the the first one it it's a different kind of movie but it's not a stupid movie okay and what about bayona's filmography was anything did anything stand out to you from the movie that you watched of his uh, the emotional connections. Every everything he makes, he draws really strong uh, emotional connections with uh, with really great uh, cinematography. Also, his first three movies 
all have to do with a, a mother child relationship. So there's, there's the strong, strong resonance there. And there's a, a form of that in uh, the new and fallen kingdom as well. Uh, not with that mother um, so much. <laughs> no, not with the mother. What about, uh, so I saw, I see on Twitter that we picked our favorite Bayona films and yours actually surprised me. So I'm curious what your reasoning behind your favorite Bayona film is. Yeah, my, my favorite Bayona film is The Impossible. Uh, this was my second time watching it. And the fact that it's a true story, that uh, this was a real family who was uh, ripped apart by this uh, disaster physically and, and spatially. They were separated and battered and, and just it was easy to connect and connect deeply with the, the strong emotional undercurrent and, and uh, despair uh, Tom Holland plays uh, Lucas, uh, the the boy, and he's actually the emotional center of uh, of the film. All he has is his mother, and he's about to lose her. He doesn't, as far as he knows, his his dad and his brother are gone, and uh, it's 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 heartbreaking, and uh, so it's easy to relate to. You know, you can imagine yourself being on vacation and having that happen. Well, I can imagine a tree monster talking to me too. So, well, okay. I'm trying to say that's not real. <laughs> I mean, everybody has imaginations. <laughs> My tree monster is offended at that. That you <laughs> <laughs> guess you can tell what Patrick and I's favorite is. Um, <laughs> awesome, man. Well, that's cool. I, I can't wait to hear a little more later on, maybe about how this uh, Jurassic Park <laughs> entry. Uh, man, it hurts me to say that uh, ties into the rest. Uh, in your opinion, how about yeah. you, Aaron? How about you? Well. You know, in a turn of events, uh, as kind of opposed to my Jurassic World 2 experience, I'm going to talk about something that made me happy. And that was a documentary that recently released on Netflix called Making Fun, The Story of Funko. Now, anybody who has seen me on social media or knows me from our Facebook group knows that I'm, like a lot of the world, a very big pop collector. I have tons of these little figures on my shelves. I love them. I love them. I love them. One of my favorite things is finding out when a new movie comes out that I'm super into or super excited about, are they going to make Funko Pop figures? So when they announced the Ready Player One figure lineup, you know, I was all excited and had to go check that out. Same thing with the recent Incredibles 2 lineup that got put out. And I just continually add to this insanely huge wish list. And with a couple of my best friends, Patrick and another guy, we have constant bets going on throughout the year. So anytime there's a sports competition, whether it's like the World Cup or college basketball tournament or football bowls, we always make a pop figure bet. And the loser has to buy the winner a pop figure of their choice or something off of their wish list. So this has like become so culturally relevant just in my own life that – it's something that I was shocked I didn't know the story of. This documentary covers how the company came into existence from the owner who started it up in a very, very cheap fashion. I mean, didn't have the means to make this thing a big hit right away. And he's local. They were from uh, Snohomish, Washington, which is right around the corner from me, literally like 10 miles away. Uh, ultimately, ends up taking this company and turning it from kind of very specific and, and low-end branded items and bobbleheads into what we know today. 
with the whole line of pop figures and the most important part, uh, which is licensing for all of the cool stuff that you could ever want a pop figure to be. Well, this documentary is surprisingly moving. It's really, really sweet. And you really get a sense of just the passion and the loyalty and the kind of honesty behind the creation of this company. It's, it's interesting. It seems to me to not be in line with what many companies you would, who are successful would be. Um, this is a company who's always stayed true to its fans and it's just believed in what it does. And it's always focused on community first. That was one of the big things that came out of the documentary is learning just how much they cared about the people that bought their product. And so the company feels that it's investing in the people that care about its product and that that will ultimately sustain it long term. It's not just about the bottom line for them. Uh, it's about the people and driving the creation of this community. And so I just gained a whole new respect for Funko. I mean, I, I was at the grand opening of the Funko headquarters store. It's again, less than 10 miles away from me. And I mean, I have a huge connection. I go there once every few weeks and pick one up uh, for much cheaper than I can get anywhere else, thankfully. And uh, yeah, it's it's awesome, man. I loved getting to see this story. I'm, I'm super stoked that it's out there. And it's just kind of cool too, just from that nostalgic part, place and that, like knowing that there's a documentary on Netflix that is showing five miles away from my house, you know, downtown where I go visit all the time. It's really kind of weird for me. I don't live in New York. I figure if you live in New York, you're probably used to having movies and stuff made about your area, but that's not the case for you know 45 minutes North of Seattle. And this one gives me that experience too. So I definitely highly recommend it for any fans of Funko. You got to watch it. It's on Netflix making fun. The story of Funko. Go watch it right when you get home from seeing Jurassic World. It'll cheer you up. I almost want to hold off. I'm making a a plan early next year to to come out and see you in Seattle. And yes, I know, I know that's on the agenda is to go check out Funko HQ. Yes, it and is. So I almost want to wait until it's closer to that to watch the documentary so that I can just walk in and be like, "Can I just get half your inventory?" Because I love you guys so much. You know, I mean, maybe we will watch it together after we go to the store. Because if you go, if you see the documentary, you're going to see the inside and the building of the store. Ooh, and you may have yeah. seen pieces of it in my pictures, but you, it's going to surprise you so much when you walk in there for the first time, not knowing what you're going to see. So I, I'd say let's walk in there before you see the documentary. That sounds good. We'll make that, we'll make that happen. Well, for me, I got a chance recently to watch what I am going to call at this point, we're halfway through the year. My number one film of 2018. Ooh, and this is this is something that I love when this happens, and because it's very rare. It's when a movie hits me at a place where I'm immediately ready to watch it again. I want to talk about it. I want to just live in the analysis of it, and I want people to go see it. Like I champion it immediately. And it's the movie called Heart Beats Loud. It's directed by a guy named Brett Haley, who's had several movies in the last uh, two or three years that I've actually not seen any of his filmography, but now I want to. He did a movie last year called Hero. Sam Elliott, I believe. Yeah. He was here yeah. at SIF for that film. 
And if you're, you know, if Sam Elliott's in your movie, you're, you're bound to have something good, right? And it stars Nick Offerman in what I would consider a very interesting dramatic role. I'm used to seeing Nick Offerman in a comedic role, Parks and Rec, things like that. I know that he's got a wide range of acting chops because I know that he's been on some dramatic series and that he can pull that off. He plays a dad who's also the owner of this aging music store. Uh, the opening scene introduces him. He's listening to something, I, I, I guess an independent artist, because that's what you do in independent films. You promote independent musicians and bands. And he is, um, he's being confronted by one of the patrons who says, I can get this cheaper off Amazon. And he's basically like, I don't care. So we really get a sense of the kind of guy he is. He has a daughter um, played by Kiersey Clemens who is about to go off to college to UCLA and it's assumed that she's going to go into med school. She's got this really high science mind and the pivotal scene that kicks off the movie of their relationship is when he convinces her to have a jam session. And this is where we get to know them as a, as a father and daughter, we get a little backstory, a little creative exposition to find out that they're both talented musically and they start just jamming. And if you're a musician or you have any inkling about musicianship, you'll know that jam sessions are a lot of fun because they're where a lot of the creativity can happen and where big ideas can, fr- can come from, but also where you can just have a lot of fun. And come to find out she's been working on a song that he ends up putting together and they arrange it. And so there's this whole sequence in a scene where they are putting this in together. It's a really great montage. And it's the first of what I would consider about 12 connecting points for me. If we were to cover this, I'm hoping at some point that we'll come back around and cover this movie. And so the whole rest of the movie takes place in the course of about two or three weeks on the eve of when she's about to go off to college. And it really talks through and narrates a story of their relationship and explores the idea of what it means to let go of things and when to hold on to your dream and when to let go from his point of view, from her point of view. And it gives this this incredible backstory about who they are as a father and daughter and how their relationship with their mother was. Uh, There are these small moments in the movie that are incredibly subtle that tell you so much about his relationship with his, uh, his ex-wife and her relationship with her mother there. I'm going to go ahead and just give my one word takeaway. It was sincere. It may change between that. Not honestly sincere, Aaron, but sincere. And that's also a musical movie. So that kind of ties in. It kind of ties in, but I remember watching this and finishing it up and I'm saying, wow, I haven't felt like this since sing street and everybody knows my love for sing street runs incredibly deep. This is like, very, very close to my heart. And so to have a movie do something like this that Sing Street did to me uh, says a lot. So if you get a chance to see it, it's not playing everywhere, which is sad. (laughs) It's really not playing anywhere. Um, Having the opportunity to see it, I was very grateful. But if it's playing in your area, please go see it. Pay the $5, $10, $15 to to spend an hour and a half in this uh, very just innocent intimate movie that uh, that I think is just an incredible entry into 2018's film uh, expose. So yeah, go see it. 
parts. That's awesome. Well, I will co-sign that. It's not my favorite film of 2018, but I will absolutely agree that it is a wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, I had enjoyed it greatly. It was the kind of film that when I saw it, I immediately sent Patrick a message and I said, you have to watch this because we know each other well enough to know when something's going to really grab the other one's attention. And sure enough, I felt very validated with his response just now. So uh, Brett Haley makes good movies and this is no different. And you're going to hear us uh, talk about an interview that we're dropping in a couple of days. And on that interview, we have a discussion with those filmmakers who are indie filmmakers also about the aspects of how films can't get seen. Uh, Just as a tease, they say that one of the biggest problems is for them getting their movie in front of people's eyes and hearts beat loud is another example of that. A great movie that it's just hard to get people to see. And the only way we can truly support these indie filmmakers is when we get a chance to go see these movies in the theater to do that. Because if we don't, then the theaters aren't going to pick them up and we're going to have to wait and they're just going to all be straight to video on demand films, which would be a bummer. So with that being said, uh, right before we move to the movie, we are going to plug another podcast. That's going to be In Session Film. I love this show. I love Brendan and JD. They're so much fun to listen to. So definitely check out their uh, what they have to say and give their podcast a listen. Also, one other thing, we are about to move into July, which means our Patreon patrons are going to be choosing our July donor pick episode. Later this week, we'll be dropping our June donor pick episode, which is on Rush, because in June, we raced into summer. And in July, we're going to cruise into July. So if you can figure out what that means, then come to Patreon and uh, visit the site. Show us a buck or two, and you can gain some votes and be a part of picking that film. All right, here's the word from the In Session Film, guys. Hello, everyone. This is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week, we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay. Yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not how this works, <laughs> sir. All right. Thank you, guys. And uh, as always, before we get into the actual full review of our movie, we want to give our obligatory spoiler alert. We'll be talking about the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So in most cases, we would say if you haven't seen the movie, go see it before enjoying the conversation. However, I've got a good feeling that each one of us is going to say enough where you're going to be like, I'm kind of glad I didn't have to experience that. Well, here's the thing, Patrick, we are going to spoil it. And as dumb as some of the things that happen in this film may be, this is a highly spoilable movie. It is. It is Uh, very spoilable. So if you do have any interest in it, despite what we all think, and despite the fact that maybe it's only 5% of the population that's going to enjoy this, if you, you could be in that 5%. And if you're determined to go see it, then definitely listen to us after you do so. I think you're overestimating the general public. Or under, <laughs> under lower, lower than five? <laughs> I think you're underestimating the general public. Oh, you're saying it's higher than five, so there's yeah. a lot more people? Yeah, I think you're right based on what we've seen. But 
Anywho. All right, Jacob, let's start with you. What is your one word takeaway from Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom? My one word takeaway is lost. Um, the Jurassic Park, the original, it's in my top 20 favorite films. It is an amazing film based on a book that I was insane about when I was a teen. And I saw the movie when I was a teen at peak excitement. It's got everything. It's got awe. It's got wonder. The story, it's a warning against playing God and the unstoppable chaos that would ensue if we tried. The Fallen Kingdom welcomes the chaos and tries to make friends with it. Consequences be damned. <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't get it. I mean, I enjoyed, I, like I said, Jurassic Park is, is one of my favorites. I enjoyed the heck out of Jurassic World. In fact, the only sequel I found disappointing is The Lost World. But with one fell swoop, the series lost everything that made it magical. There is no awe. There is no wonder. The humor falls completely flat. Nobody's actions make any sense. From the first scene, you have the mercenary saying, everything down here is dead already. What? So they just forgot about the giant Shamu that was down there? It, it doesn't make any sense. Claire is a completely different person. Suddenly she's, she's on to the Greenpeace thing, saving the dinosaurs, going to risk the life of herself and her campaign assistants who have no business being on the most dangerous place in the earth. Why? We're in this movie. <laughs> yeah, we're in this movie. They're caricatures. <laughs> I and mean, the, the same technology that created Jurassic World was still in existence. What, are, are the dinosaurs are actually going to go extinct? It doesn't even make any sense. But also, the villains are utter mustache-twirling cartoons. They're completely one-dimensional and worse than laughable. And the dinosaurs are completely incompetent. You, you have people are letting them out of gates and cages, and they don't care. They don't care who dies. It's it's just insane. It's lost. It, it has nothing of the original. Well, tell us how you really feel, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> I can keep going. Don't don't, don't hold back. <laughs> Very justifiable reasons and a, and a great uh, one word takeaway to really sum that up. Aaron, what about you? Well, I had a few one word takeaways uh, when I watched this movie, and I have to leave out several of them because they're not. Um, podcast clean. <laughs> I was gonna say we don't need the e on our <laughs> on our episode tonight. I can tell you that it's ridiculous. Uh, I can tell you that it's stupid. I can tell you that it was boring. I can tell you that it was annoying. I could tell you that it's hashtag dead to me. But the one that I'm going to frame everything around, I think, is the word exhausting. This for me was an experience that was closer to Transformers than Jurassic Park. And I, I honestly could not believe how dumb the story was from the very beginning, as Jacob was saying, with this tiny activist group teaming up with mustache twirling mercenaries to evacuate dinosaurs from a volcanic island that's about to explode when the government won't help. All the way down to this secret underground dinosaur breeding lab hidden beneath a mansion and complete with a black market selling weaponized dinos in an auction. This film is all over the place, tonally. And I honestly, the horror bits were the only thing that worked a little bit for me. And I think that that's a credit to Bayona and his, you know, style, what he's really good at. But there is no chemistry between the leads, and I think that pretty much every attempt at making an emotional connection with these characters and this world was foiled by unrealistic, idiotic decisions. I was mostly bored, and I felt pretty disappointed walking out of the theater, and that turned to indifference, which then the more I lingered on it became anger about what this series has become. And it was just exhausting for me to watch this movie. And 
I almost wanted to walk out of the theater, which is a feeling I never get. And I'm at the point now that I can't believe I'm saying this, Patrick, but I don't want any more. It's a true statement. And and I'm going to just say I third everything that you guys are saying. I, I know that every movie is going to hit me differently. That's just a fact. And I like the fact that I really have that wow moment uh, because it makes those films stand out to me. And I'm looking at you, Hearts Be Loud. So when I have moments like that, I don't, and I don't unjustifiably compare everything to those movie experiences because I know that big summer blockbusters are rarely going to give me that feeling, but they're going to give me some feeling. I'm going to walk out of a movie theater when I watch Infinity War or Ready Player One or something that's going to give me those exciting summer blockbuster beats and feel like, man, that was a lot of fun. I had a great movie experience and I can forget about it at the very least when I prep for our show, I can process and I can put some things together and it's enjoyable to come up with my one word takeaway. It's enjoyable to come up with my connecting point. And even when we have movies, Aaron, you and I have for the most part through 100 plus episodes have at least halfway enjoyed everything that we've watched. I think the one that came close, maybe the two that we both agreed on were The Circle and Suicide Squad. But both of those, I remember we at least had pretty great moments to talk through. And um, maybe Mag 7, we were we were uneven on. So this is one of those rare occasions when I had to say, man, that was not a good experience, like, like at all. And there was so much stuff packed into this movie to a fault. Last week, uh, you and Blaine... When when you were talking about The Incredibles, there was a lot going on in The Incredibles because Brad Bird had a lot to, to put in there, but it didn't feel what became known as my one word takeaway for this film, and that's incoherent. So you can put big ideas into a movie and you can succeed or fail at fleshing those out. And what Brad Bird does in Incredibles 2, which is have all these ideas that make you want to kind of explore each one of them didn't take away from the overall narrative. And so my reaction to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom was saying things like, wait, wait, what's going on? Wait, did, what did he just say? The, the tone of the whole movie seemed to just turn on a dime from drama to action to comedy and then to nonsensical. And it was frustrating and incredibly disappointing because it's as if the filmmakers, and I'm going to, I'm not going to, put all the credit onto Bayona because I I think it's unfair. Yes. The guy in the director's chair is going to get the big credit, but there's a writing team behind this. There's a casting team behind this. There's a cinematography team behind this. And so as a whole, it felt like each person in this project was like, I'm going to make it do this and I'm going to write for this and I'm going to do these things. And it was frustrating to experience that. Because it was like, you know, fool me once. And I'm thinking about the lost world. Shame on you, uh, you know, shame on me. But fool me twice. I think this is kind of the gotcha again entry into the Jurassic franchise because we expected something. I've, I'm, I'm one of those people that really enjoyed Jurassic World and I enjoyed it surprisingly more than I thought I would. Because when the original, te- 
when, when the original, and maybe you can agree, maybe you can jive with this, Jacob. When the original teaser came out for Jurassic World, I was like, really? You're going back to the island to do exactly what the results of the original Jurassic Park told you not to is don't create dinosaurs. And as the, as the trailers began coming out and I began to see more of the stuff that Jurassic World was about, I got more excited about it. And then the things that I picked up on during my experience of watching Jurassic World really got me to buy into what it was. It wasn't necessarily just a rehash of Jurassic Park, although yes, we could admit the basic plot points were there. It was a, to me, I think it was a great kind of extension 10 years, 20 years after the original Jurassic Park came around in building on top of that. And and the filmmakers were, were not unapologetic about that. I mean, it was literally built on top of the original park and expanded on for oh, and that's And that's the way, Oh, sorry. That's the way we are. We we don't learn from our mistakes. We, we, we like, Oh, that was an awesome idea. Let's pick up on that. And we'll, we'll do it better this time. Right. And what, what this experience and all of its disappointment got me thinking was why is it besides everything that we've mentioned, all the obvious stuff, incoherence and ridiculousness, all these different things that granted can exist in a movie and still hold our interest. Um, we we hear the phrase stupid fun. I think Don Shanahan, one of our writers, uh, called Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom just that, stupid fun, which is, I guess, one way of justifying enjoying a movie that really has no substance. And there's a place for that. There's a, there, there is a place for movies like that. I have no problem admitting that. But the thing is, we're living in a world, a Jurassic world, if you will, where we've been given something from the original movie that we expect to at least have some element in. And the original Jurassic Park gave us what I think is lost. And that's the, the dinosaurs. And Jacob, you mentioned that the awe and wonder, that's the thing that I think Aaron and I talked about on our episode was that Jurassic Park framed us as an audience with the characters in the film of like, oh my gosh, they really did it. Look at these dinosaurs. Look at this. We can actually stand next to them. And there was some beauty to that. And that was lost. <laughs> it was lost mm-hmm. in Jurassic uh, Park Fallen, or Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. The stories are grounded in some science. So we could probably believe that um, people pulled out dino DNA from Amber. And there's some connectability in that. And then there's that danger and the power of these creatures and even their first entry into the jurassic world franchise gave us that but the biggest thing i think that has lost is lost is that danger and power of these creatures and for me that's the biggest criticism i have is that these dinosaurs felt less like powerful unapproachable beasts and more like really really out of control pets that we cannot control and i don't want that for my dinosaurs I want to feel afraid. I want to feel overwhelmed. And instead I feel like I'm getting Godzilla in the prehistoric era. Would you guys agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, I, the, the, if you go back to the original, it's inspired by Michael Crichton's writings. He was all about being careful with science mm-hmm. and the dangerous places it could lead to. It's, it's about danger it, that, you have to be careful of this. This wasn't about danger. This was about 
oh, we invited chaos and now we're going to, like you said, we're going to treat it like a pet. We're going to get all emotional with it. And <laughs> who cares what happens to the humans? We we created this thing. So now we just need to let them have their fair chance. Aaron, yeah, it's, it's awful. I mean, it's, I just rewatched Jurassic World right before this. And like you said, I was surprised at how much I still enjoyed that movie it's not great either, in my opinion, because it does recop or not recopy. That's a double negative or whatever, double positive. <laughs> uh, it does copy the original film in so many ways, but unlike some, I enjoyed the emotional connection of the brother storyline in that film. And I thought that, you know, it gave us enough of a new look for this park because of all of the marketing focus. And it, it made it current to our day and age. It looked like what a Jurassic Park would look like today with someone trying to brand and name the new cool dinosaur, right? That you're always trying to make bigger and badder because you have to sell it. And so that all made perfect sense. The worst thing about Jurassic World for me was the militarization of the Raptors subplot. And of course, that has had to carry on into this film. And I think you're right, Patrick. Like, that's where we start to lose this is because it's gotten away from the tight story about what if into how can we make these interactions with the dinosaurs newer and cooler and scarier instead of the awe and wonder that was part of it the first time. So when Jurassic Park has a T-Rex that sneaks up behind you and is breathing and you're in an upside down car scared to death or whatever, there's a sense of that awe and wonder that is coming with the horror and the fear. There's not that in this movie. In this movie, the dinosaurs move in a way that makes them look really weird to me at times. Like the way that their joints move, it's it's almost like bad human like uh, almost like humans are, you know, mocapping them or something. And there's other just CGI gaffes that for me make the dinosaurs completely laughable. There's a one point when blue is escaping guys and there's an explosion that happens behind them. And I, I don't know what has happened. You know what it looked like to me? It looked like the way that blue shot forward on the camera and then like banged around some of the railings with the explosive happened behind him or her. She's a girl, right? They're all, uh, they're all it reminded me of like playing that Jurassic Park first person shooter game in the arcade. Like what would happen if something came at the screen? That's what that looked like. And I don't have a problem with those kind of things if it's the whole aspect of the film. So if the whole film truly was a B-movie and campy and abandoned trying to be serious with this opening of Ian Malcolm giving a government talk. That's another thing that pisses me off is don't sell me on your movie that Jeff Goldblum's in it and then put him in the beginning at, you know, having a half of a speech and then at the very end finishing his speech. That's a cop out. And he, had the, he had the same message, but the movie didn't care. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. You try to, and you try to make it serious and then you give me, really ridiculous and then you switch to now you need to be really really scared because there's another raptor stalking somebody else in a kitchen which we've never seen happen before so yes i'm with you overall but the dinosaurs are not good in this film 
Well, and there's definitely... Go ahead, Jacob. Oh, I I halfway expected uh, at some point Pratt to jump on the back of Blue and ride her her off. (laughs) That was that silly at times. It it was Looney Tunes. It really was. And there are moments that I think are exploited from the original film and even from Jurassic World. And the one moment that... Well, there, there are three in this one that are almost carbon copies of one of the pivotal significant moments from the original. I have no problem with intertextuality and calling back. I think Jurassic world did a healthy job of creating a new world, literally, but also giving us that intertextuality of calling us back to the original telling us, look, this is where we came from. And Aaron, that's one of the biggest things I loved about Jurassic world is that it was very meta in terms of how we are, as an audience, like we are not surprised at big dinosaurs. And so you have a park that is perfectly, that works perfectly well functionally. I mean, the only, and I say this tongue in cheek, the only thing that messed it up was you had, you had a dinosaur that ran loose. So as long as you can contain the dinosaurs, you're all good. But Jurassic world was what I would want in this time period in the, in 20, that would be my vision of, of of an actual park, an iteration of a park with all the cool kind of SeaWorld type attractions. I love the, I don't know, the, the spheres that you can ride around in and look at. There was so much about the visuals of Jurassic World and kind of a wish list of things that as an audience, I was like, yes, I could totally believe this and totally want to go here. But Jurassic, uh, what Colin Trevorrow and his team did, they said, we have to amp this up because our audience is not from 1993. They're, they want to see something bigger and better. And the plot really kind of replicated that. It said, we have to create a brand new dinosaur that's going to be even scarier than the T-Rex. That being said, the one moment in Jurassic World that I think is one of the, well, it's, there are several cool moments, but the one that really stands out is the T-Rex near the end with the welcome to Jurassic park banner in the background. And he's just yelling or she's just yelling. That thing is replicated in Jurassic world. When, when she takes down the Indominus Rex, which is fantastic, like great callback Jurassic world, fallen kingdom three times, three times we get that same thing on the Island. And then twice at Lockwood's estate. And by the time we get to that very last one, I'm rolling my eyes and I'm going enough You've taken an iconic shot and you've exploited it and made it so much less sincere and less impactful because we're seeing it over and over and over again. And every time I see it, I'm like, you know what? I'm probably going to see this again at some point. The T-Rex is going to come in and she's going to come to the rescue. And she feels less like a threat and like a kind of an anti-hero and more like a hero at this point. And I don't want that. Again, I want my dinosaurs to be threatening. Like I want Blue to have some threatening capabilities, even though we get some of those empathetic character traits that we that we discovered throughout the film. That that danger is missing, and the focus is now on the stupidity of humans trying to exploit what we never need to exploit, which is these giant creatures. And while that's a really interesting idea, I think the execution of that idea really, really failed. Yeah. When you have a moment of a a raptor getting a blood transfusion from a T-Rex, 
and that's not even the dumbest thing in your movie, <laughs> you got problems. Okay, like big ones. I mean, there's so many just the fact that they're things going into the cage with the T Rex that is obviously not even tranked that the well. The cages, the cages. <laughs> How many movies do we need to have for people to realize don't open the cage? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not hard. Just don't open the cage. So but, many gates and, and yeah. cages and doors opened in this thing. Nobody has any respect for the dinosaurs. No. And the, and the locks seem so easy to open and close. <laughs> like, really? It's just, it doesn't make sense to me at all. And it's also inconsistent because, yeah. you know, if you want me to, again, the horror bits, there were pieces of them that worked for me. And again, I, I would echo that that is 100% because of Bayona's ability to use strong visual direction with that genre. But it's very evocative visually. Yes, but the moment from the trailer, right, where the Indoraptor is opening the window with the hook of his claw and all this, super scary in context when you when you know what he's doing. He's smart. He's going through the window very quietly and sneakily, yet... Just before that, he can't climb a damn staircase, guys. He is like clawing around, flailing around like a moron and can't just walk up the staircase. So he can hover and hop around the top of a building like he's, you know, parkour master. He can ninja himself into an upstairs window by quietly opening the latch, but he can't walk up a staircase to get to a human that's dangling. I, I just, it's moronic and there's no sense of consistency there's no sense of like uh you know it just doesn't stay together well and then i could keep going but i I do want to say one more thing but that is that chris pratt for me i love chris pratt and i don't think he's ever going to just switch over and go indie on us and start doing serious acting jobs i really feel like he probably is this is him and he's good with it and that's fine this movie at various moments tries to make him into indiana jones Right down to the five-ton trucks with dinosaurs, the five-ton truck trying to jump up here that doesn't have a ramp on it, okay? So the boat's actually like five to ten feet off the pier when the truck jumps, and there's no ramp, and somehow it goes up in the air. I don't even know how that happens. Magic. But it makes him feel like Indiana Jones mixed with some of the Uncharted 4 video game-like storyline. And then... He is a dinosaur trainer, fellas, a dinosaur trainer, and he goes hand-to-hand combat defeating hired mercenary killers. These things are just, I don't know, they're just like, you know, with Indiana Jones, you believe it because he has those experiences in his in this past, right? So you know he's interacted with people where he's maybe had to learn how to fight, carries a whip with him when we meet him. But that's not the case with Pratt. Pratt is a trainer. That's it. It's all he's ever done and build houses, apparently. And so for him to suddenly be able to go hand-to-hand combat with these guys, I really just, if you could have taken this movie and like broken it up, you could have remade it with a focus on one of the five different directions it tried to go. I would have liked any five of those better than this combination. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because this movie was definitely crammed with a lot of stuff. And I, I agree with you. I think there are probably three significant storylines that were introduced that were either ignored or were manipulated in order to push the story along. And I think any one of them could have been an entire entry 
into the Jurassic franchise. Like you, Aaron, I have no problem with, particularly with Jurassic World, if we're talking about this set of, of films, going to a campy action, crazy style. I have no problem with that, but you have to give it time to get there. And I think what we have is Jurassic World, which feels partly like Jurassic Park in having its action and its great set pieces and having a little bit of drama here and there. And I don't think this entry had the opportunity, well, maybe had the opportunity, but I think it chose to put more into it than was needed. And one of the main things that I would love to have seen an entire film done on, although I don't know that it would have been nearly as, it would have been more interesting than what we got, but I don't know how you would have fleshed this out, is the actual island rescue. The thing that's interesting, that's always been interesting, and you guys can disagree with me, about the Jurassic franchise is the island. Isla Nublar, 120 miles west of Costa Rica. You see that every entry, and you're like, I'm here. I'm in Jurassic. I'm in the Jurassic franchise. That particular like caption on the screen tells me we're into it. Even, uh, is it Isla Sorna, the secondary yes. island? Yeah, from Jurassic Park 3. Still calls back to it in some ways. No, that was two. That was the Lost World. You're right. That's right, because they go back to the... Anyway, you're right. But the fact is... We have, we have an island that is essentially a supporting character in this franchise. It is just as mysterious. It's a lot like the Millennium Falcon is for the Star Wars franchise. While it's not a speaking character, it has enough personality because of its mystery, because of its placement in this. And what I, what I loved initially was that whole conversation between what became our main villain and Claire about this sanctuary. I was like, oh man, we're going to get a new island. We're going to get, this is a, a new character that we could potentially end up getting to. And of course it became a just kidding moment later on. But I think that had this entry focused on getting the dinosaurs either off the island or lingering on that idea of, should we even rescue these guys? Because that's a strong idea. It's a strong idea that came from the original Jurassic uh, films of, if nature is causing the extinction again, should we mess with that? I think that's a solid idea. And you have enough of these characters that exist where you could spend enough time getting to the island, searching around the island, dealing with island mystery and island um, stuff, and whatever that end result is, whether it's rescuing all the species, whether it's rescuing the raptors or whether it's not rescuing them at all. And then you have maybe a tease at the end of that where you realize, oh my gosh, this whole thing, this whole rescue was actually given having an alternative. There was an alternate reasoning behind it, which is what we got in here, but we got it through the lens of what Jacob, you said at best, this mustache twirling villain that I just really loved to hate. He had no purpose other than just giving me eye rolls, uh, taking teeth out of dinosaurs. And I'm like, what is the point? Except to just get me to think what every audience member is thinking is like, I'm ready for you to get eaten by a dinosaur. Um, and to me, I felt like that could have been an entire movie in and of itself. Other ideas, the two big ones was this idea of cloning. Although <laughs> the fact that it was done through <laughs> a little girl who we thought was a granddaughter, but was actually a clone. I thought that was a little far-fetched 
unbelievable, Patrick, and yeah. unexcusable. And that's the point where I the movie died for me, honestly. Like I was rolling my eyes a lot up until that point. But when you give us that reveal and 15 seconds later, you move on from it and just drop it. It's no big deal. And the only other callback to that whole storyline is at the very, very end. And the fact that she lets them go mm-hmm. and she says something about, I want, I think they deserve to live or I want them to live, you know, like me. That's mm-hmm. the only other time it's mentioned. That it should is have been the most significant factor of the it, movie. If, if you're going to have it in there, it darn yeah. well should. Yeah, it sure. should be. And you don't have to explore it fully. I know they're trying to set up part three. I'm not saying it's not okay to give us a little nugget for a part three and go into a bigger exploration of an idea. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to give it to us the way they gave it to us and then just pretend like there's nothing there, like I just, I just couldn't, I could not believe it. I mean, yeah. and the it fact didn't that affect anybody, you didn't affect anybody. That's what I was going to say. The fact that like Owen, I'm going to try and remember his name and Claire did not even react to that at all. As if, I mean, stop the presses like there's a human clone in front of you it's kind of a big deal it really is i I think the other element that i think could have been a b plot in this besides the 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 island rescue again this is me doing my fan fiction this is like what would patch do if he could remake this um is this interesting relationship between lockwood and hammond i thought that was pretty fantastic where you have this other partnership that is created for this franchise that I think this is the first time we're introduced to this Lockwood Hammond relationship and seeing how their visions clashed at one point and they went one way, one went one way and one went the other. I thought there was a lot there, but again, it was truncated for the sake of saying, you know, we've got to get this in, in just over two hours and we don't want to forget about, the incredible auction that we have to film and the, and, and the, and the crazy Raptor that's eventually going to just go crazy and perform parkour. I just, I think that it was a big fail on the creative team to say, what do we include and what we don't. And that's to me, what I think created this really crazy shift, because I think you can have these dramatic elements and these really incredible ideas and these exploratory philosophical discussions in the midst of crazy action. I think that those ideas could have existed with a, with a character like Owen, who was compared to an Indiana Jones in Jurassic world. I mean, he came across that way, very much kind of a swashbuckler. He had that really great charisma. I was okay. Believing that he was a a Raptor trainer because in some ways, the, the, the first film set that up pretty well. And we got introduced to that environment where if we can tame dinosaurs by giving us a big aquarium where this big giant mesosaurus or whatever it was could live, then sure we can believe that there are trainers that, that are folks that exist like Chris Pratt. But I agree with you. And I think what happened is we have, and Jacob, you mentioned this too about Claire is we have two characters that distinctly embodied something and their characters were completely turned on a dime for the sake of furthering a plot. And it made me personally go, yeah, not really interested. And you you can't save it by putting them in a relationship and creating this kind of sexual tension, which really wasn't tension at all. It was just really more like romantic annoyance. When they kissed at the end, I was like, okay, let's roll the credits because that was just not even necessary. I don't, I don't need that. 
And, I, and, and that was really frustrating for me. I wrote down, a, I kiss, thought, a kiss makes super Chris <laughs> because that's exactly what happened. It's like it gave yeah. him superpowers. Yes. I thought Pratt actually elevated Jurassic World. I, I thought he was a great character. It made sense to that there would be a trainer. That, you know, he'd raised the the raptors from from birth and had worked with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people work with dangerous animals. That that. But then once they're out in the wild and everything's out in the wild, and you have him and Claire, the former park manager, out roaming this. <laughs> like I said, this is the most dangerous place on earth now, and. Yeah. Acting like it's no big deal. Well, they're, you know, they're a little scared, but, you know, not really a big deal. It, it, it just, he became camp. And he did. It, 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 there's this great, there's this great moment. I say great. There's this moment that I remember talking to my wife about. She, this is one of those rare occasions when she went with me and she, she turned to me afterwards and she said, what'd you think? I said, I did not like that. And she goes, oh, and I said, did you? She goes, not really. <laughs> but there's this moment that I called out and I said, here we have a dramatic moment where Pratt as Owen is encountering blue and he's calming her. And there's some really little moments of humor where he tries to throw the meat at her and she's like, not having it. And he's like, okay. And I love the moment where he start he gets his hand really close. And then all of a sudden you have flat villain number one come out and, and trank her. And then there's this big confrontation. And then what follows is they trank him. They trank, yeah, they <laughs> the raptor with the raptor trank. <laughs> and he blows him, you know, he literally like just blows on him and he falls over. But what frustrated me was you have a setup of like, oh my gosh, they're going to try to get this raptor off the island. And there's this kind of dramatic moment. And then you have this lava that's engulfing the island. And <sighs> Pratt is. How do I describe this? He's flailing because he's still numb from the train and it played for humor. And I'm like, am I supposed to be laughing at this? Or am I supposed to be am I supposed to be like, oh my gosh? Because one, I know he's gonna get away. And so I think that what this told me is what I think the whole experience told me is that I believe, and this is one of the sins in filmmaking that I'm discovering. Your filmmakers creative team, whoever it is that you want to blame, assume that their audience was stupid. They didn't trust us to kind of be in the moment and feel that drama. And so they had to play those moments for humor to take some of the tension away where I'm like, I need that tension. I need to see if, man, I hope, I hope Owen gets his arm burned. I hope maybe he loses his arm because this, this is lava people. This is lava from a active volcano. This isn't the Hawaii book. This is Isla Nublar exploding and about ready to just burn in flames. And we have a raptor trainer that's flailing and doing some kind of stop, drop, and roll over a log and eventually escapes. It was that's- a spoof version of uh, Indiana Jones, like you said. Yes. It's like Indiana Jones you know, lying in the pile of snakes or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yet it was a spoof version where he, he's flopping around. Mm-hmm. It made me like- so mad. I was so angry at that scene. Um, and Patrick, you know, I wanted to touch on something though that you said. I really loved your idea, and honestly, I hope that somebody gives you 170 million to make the Lockwood and Hammond movie because that was a fascinating idea. And I think that this boils down to Trevorrow has not been a very good writer. Now, I'm going to put safety not guaranteed in a box by itself because that film is a good film and it is written well. 
But now with this film, some of Jurassic World, even you could see this coming. And then Book of Henry, which is also it's the biggest complaint about that is the incoherence and the like the story doesn't come together. He has these ideas. And I feel like at least the way it's presented to me is that the Hammond and Lockwood reveal the the fact that Lockwood is this partner was I don't get the sense that he had a bigger idea about how that could have a relationship ha- could have existed for years and, and the depth of it. I felt like he truly came up with that idea just as a means of introducing a problem. You know, like he, I don't think he gets the importance of, of what that could mean and how that could go. Um, because otherwise, like why kill him off? Like if you kill him off, we can't keep going with that in the next movie. So it made me really also a little bit happy that he got fired from Star Wars, to be honest with you. Because when I see this movie and know that he was in charge of writing episode nine for a time, that scares me to death. Because I, I, what would have happened if he tried to make something this incoherent in the Star Wars universe? Like, I, I don't know. It, you know, he may I not. Mean, have, he would have been burned at the stake is what would have happened. He, his career would be over. Um, and so it's just, I do think that the writing is, is very poor, but I gotta, I want to ask a question for you guys. The vast majority of folks I have talked to and I'm in critic circles. So a lot of these people are critics, uh, but many of them are not have disliked this film. Everybody's been down on it as a whole, but there are the occasional folks who, have said, you know, I like that. And the biggest argument that I personally have heard from these people is it's dumb fun. You mentioned earlier what Don had, had said, or it's mindless entertainment, or it's bad because of blah, 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 dot, 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 but dinosaurs. Why are those people, do you think, okay with mediocrity? Like, what? at what point do we not say that they're that this dumb fun because for me guys the experience i had is i was unable to just relax and quote unquote have fun because my mind was constantly being drawn had attention drawn to all of the problematic elements of the film and so i'm wondering what that disconnect is between groups that say i can watch this just for the dinosaurs and enjoy it versus the vast majority so far who say it's absolutely unwatchable for me and I can't just turn my mind off and say, Oh, that's cool. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I, I, the first, the original one, I mean, I think it has to do with the people's, uh, relationship to the dinosaurs and the original one, I I didn't love the dinosaurs because the dinosaurs were cool. I mean, they were awesome and powerful and mighty and dangerous and here in my, even in my audience in the theater, I'm hearing people go, Oh, when something happens to hurt a dinosaur and it, it, it's, and I think this is why uh, they brought on Bayona because of the emotional connections he makes. So he made these emotional connections to the dinosaurs um, instead of to the, the people. And so everybody's, you know, falling in love with the dinosaurs as characters and not, not rather than as forces, um, so they, uh, yeah, it's, it's, people are like, oh, they're dinosaurs. I, I, I love these dinosaurs. I love these characters. You know, I don't, I don't want, you know, I, I want the best for them. Yeah. I think when, 
my perspective would be more in line with dinosaurs are they have the potential to do almost anything. They can be weaponized, obviously. They can be shown in awe and wonder. But what I think for the three of us, and I don't want to speak for all three of us, although I might be, we don't get enough time with them. What we have are a series of 30-second shots. I think the longest we linger on a particular, outside of blue, uh, the longest we linger on a particular dinosaur is with the the Indoraptor or with that crazy headbutting concussion dinosaur. Yeah. And I think concussion saurus, <laughs> right? Seriously. It has a concussion at the end. It like wobbles around. It's, it's Oh, that was time. so ridiculous. That was losing. Cause I have expected to see stars floating around its head. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think the, the issue is I, I honestly couldn't answer the question. I don't know why some people like it just because it's dinosaurs Maybe because we don't see movies with dinosaurs. Maybe it's the Godzilla effect where we don't see big, scary monsters enough. We, when we have a monster movie, we are more in line with your your alien or your predator, mysterious, the Jaws type thing. And maybe dinosaurs, because we don't see them a lot, maybe it's the fact that because they're on screen, that justifies the existence of the movie. Now, that being said... I think you have to, in any case, with, I mean, let's go back to Pacific Rim Uprising. Not a great film by any means. And I feel like you can make that same argument. Hey, it's giant robots fighting. And that's a very true statement. It is giant robots fighting. It's what we as fans asked for, but it's not really what we wanted. Because the fact is what made Pacific Rim so great is that you had teases of that. And I think that on this side, I think the biggest argument that I can make on the opposite side of that is that in reality, our what ifs really don't need to be portrayed on screen. I think in some ways we're like, hey, what if you weaponize dinosaurs? That would be kind of interesting. But then when you execute that idea, it becomes something that's no, not so much. And I think it's partly because of the fact that we have a connection to the original Jurassic Park and the emotional connection and the awe and wonder that existed there you can't separate that i think that you're right and i do want to say that even though i hated the idea of weaponizing dinosaurs in the first film and continuing on into this one the actual way in which the dinosaur was weaponized meaning the idea of laser sight with an auditory blast and a clicker to direct the dinosaur to a target i actually thought that was brilliant and i was upset because it wasn't used in a better way that it was all wrapped up in this underground black market auction kind of thing i think you know if you're gonna create a weaponized dinosaur like that almost has to be the crux of your entire film again not just one like minor plot point but i liked that the the idea that they came up with instead of you know strapping chris pratt or something to the back of the dinosaur, some, you know, rockets to the back of the dinosaur. I mean, I have expected to see that too, Jacob, where like he would, you know, that you get like this Indoraptor with uh, shoulder pads and, you know, remote control drone that flies them around or something. I, I don't know. I would have not been surprised about any of that. <laughs> but what I, what I also wonder is, are we going to ever get a better Jurassic Park film now? And that's why I said hashtag dead to me in one of my word, one word takeaway at the beginning, because 
I, I don't think so. Uh, I know that the third film is in Trevorrow's hands, and I know that, frankly, it's made enough money in China already to justify its existence because we're already pushing six, seven hundred million, and they're going to keep going with this. And I think that the original idea is done, and I'm glad that we have the original movie, even the original few, because this storyline feels like it wants to try and be the Planet of the Apes trilogy in depth. And ideas with the dinosaurs taking over the world, because now it's actually a Jurassic world, you know? Like, do you guys get that? Okay, the movie told yes. us. Okay, just making sure. Because um, we're, we're stupid. <laughs> we're stupid people. Exactly. We're, um, we're like dinosaurs. It's trying to be that, but, you know, it doesn't have any of that emotional resonance that that trilogy gives us that makes it what it is. And so I think the series is is kind of toast for now, or at least for a long period. Uh, and I, I'm just, I'm sad. I mean, I'm still seriously the most, the largest emotion I had coming out of this was just disappointment in that I went and I sent two hours or a little bit longer watching a dinosaur movie and didn't have fun. And I hated that. Like it felt, felt miserable to me. Like that I couldn't enjoy it more. Yeah. I, I think, go ahead, Jacob. Oh, I yeah, I I thought for sure that all all the dumb talking about it. I'm like, come on, it's it's Jurassic Park. You know, the worst the worst one has still had fun moments, and and I was annoyed from the very first scene, and I never stopped being annoyed. It was very sad and frustrating that uh, I I wanted it to be over when the first act wasn't even over. I, yeah. I was it, so disappointed. I found myself when my my wife's phone buzzed at one point, and I yeah, you know, she looked at it, and I was like. What time is it? Okay, good. We got about half an hour left. And I don't want that. I don't. You wanted it to be over, right? You were like excited about it ending. Yeah. You know, if there's one moment of optimism, I would say it's what the third film could be. I kind of like the idea of living among dinosaurs, of how we have to. that The last sequence, that last little montage of showing dinosaurs being shipped off to different countries and Henry Wu making his, uh, you know, his escape once again, just seeing glimpses of that and kind of giving us a hint of like, oh, okay, so the third film is really going to be about, maybe it'll take place 10 years later where dinosaurs live among us. Now we have, and it's going to be ridiculous. There's no doubt about it because they've set us up for like, all right, now we're probably going to have dinosaur battle royals. We're going to have a T-Rex and a triceratops go toe to toe as part of like a wrestling match. And it's going to be like closed circuit television. I think it's, that's what it's going to be. The idea of that, if I can forgive the fact that this franchise is never going to be what it was, I can have some optimism with that. I probably will not go see it at least not in the theater because I don't want to experience that. I don't, I don't really want to revisit the Jurassic franchise anymore for the same reasons you guys have mentioned. It's just not, better franchise because of its entries. Um, I do, coincidentally, I do want to go back and watch the original Jurassic World and I want to go watch Jurassic Park 3 now <laughs> because I kind of, I, I want redemption, even if it's not great redemption. I want to kind of go back to saying, hey, here's here's the good old days. Here's when it was, <laughs> at least if it's nonsensical, it has moments that it's really good. If you're still with us and you're wondering, we do have connecting points, which <laughs> I, I was surprised. I was surprised that I still had a connecting point even through my whole experience. And I'm grateful for that because connecting points make me happy. They help me 
validate my movie experience and the 10 or $15 that I spend on a ticket. So let's go ahead and start with Jacob. Jacob, what was your connecting point? Uh, my connecting point was uh, Maisie discovering who she thought was her grandfather dead. Um, the, there's uh, still a touch of Bayona's ability to make emotional connections between parent and child in this, or in this case, grandchild. And away from all the ridiculous ridiculousness, her calling out to her grandfather in bed, suddenly realizing he's dead. That's indeed sad. I, I, I did feel sad for her. It, this girl, it's, she's already without a real mother or father, now without her grandfather. And then she lost her nanny too. I mean, this is a, a girl who's who's all alone in the world now, and I, I did find that sad. But she's definitely a Spider Man in disguise, and you know, <laughs> I thought although, that was a go ahead. Although with the the decision she made at the end, I, I had no more uh, <laughs> no more feelings for her. But is it really her grandfather? Dead <laughs> to me. Why it was a clone of her grandfather? Is it really it her grandfather? Oh, yeah. she's a clone. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe Lockwood's a clone. Maybe there's there's like another one of him living somewhere in China or something. At, <laughs> at this point, the whole time when he was like trying to hide the picture. The whole time when he was what? The whole movie. He's like trying to hide the picture. The mo- the film takes – there are so many close-ups in this movie. It it made me bonkers. It, it felt at times like Bayona was trying to use the camera close-ups on characters to evoke emotion. Like if I get closer, you guys are going to feel something powerful. It felt very manipulative. Like yeah. in in his other movies, it, he might have used the same techniques, but the story worked, so it didn't feel manipulative. It it enhanced it enhanced the emotion of the story. But this, since every since it was tonally off the entire way through, every one of those decisions just felt manipulative. That's for sure. Aaron, what about you? What was your connecting point? Well, if I had to have a third one, it probably would have been a distant third, but it would have been that moment, Jacob, because I agree. In that moment. It is done with enough of an emotional turn that you get a flicker of a feeling. Um, the other thing that I almost got, I got a little bit of a flicker of a feeling was actually the Brachiosaurus scene when they're pulling away from the island. Yeah, that would have been a great last shot in my movie. Exactly. I thought the exact same thing, Patrick. Like if if the movie was about the island, like you said, and the volcano, that Perfect. would be a great ending. Um, but because of how the events got us to that scene and then what happens right after it it loses a lot of its power but both visually strike it's one of the best cinematography scenes of the entire film as it disappears slowly into this rainbow color of smoke and fire and and yeah it's sad i mean hearing it call out knowing it's about to burn up and stuff that was a second for me Uh, but my number one and none of these are super strong. Like if I was going to rank all of my connecting points at the end of the year, these are going to be way down on that list. If you know, if I even get to mentioning them, but it was the videotape footage of Owen training blue that we called back to. And I'll admit, I didn't even want that. I knew it was coming. I felt very much like, Oh, we're going to get some footage of the past. I bet in this movie, like that's what we're getting set up for. And sure enough, she just happens to find like an iPad or a computer that's perfectly on YouTube videos of Owen training blue. So she watches them, but this was tough for me because I think that, you know, when she's watching that footage of Owen training blue, it reminded me of my own relationship with my pets. And I often call my cat Strider, one of my three current cats, my best friend, because he lays on me all the time. We have a very close relationship. I mean, 
there's a bond there. And watching Owen train blue and seeing the scene at the beginning where he's initially uh, training and blue is attacking him. She does not understand what it means when he tries to cower and, and ask for can her to relax and to, to be calming. But then we later see her respond with empathy and she grows into this creature that comforts him when she thinks he's sad. And so I've experienced that, you know, with my cat, when I'm sick, he knows I'm sick. Like he will come up and lay with me when I don't feel well. It's almost like an innate ability for him to know that information. And so that gave the relationship between Owen and Blue a little more depth for me at that point in the film. It was toward the end of the movie, so it didn't really redeem much of the what came before it. But it did then lend more weight to the story when Blue leaves at the very end and does not stay with Owen and goes off into the wild. And so, yeah, that's sad. It's a sad but true fact that that's really the only relationship in this entire film I cared about uh, was Owen and Blue, and this is really the crux of why. So yeah. that was my connecting point. Well, and while you were saying your connecting point, it inspired me to pet my dog because my dog is sitting right at my feet. Aww. And she's being very quiet. So I feel happy about that. Canine World 3. <laughs> and girl, too. So it's all good. Um, well, Aaron, I have to agree. That was probably my, that was, was my connecting point. And one of the biggest struggles that I had with this particular entry, uh, I mentioned it earlier, was that emotional proximity that it was attempting to give us because I don't want my dinosaurs to be like a pet. <laughs> I want to have empathy for them. Sure. But I, and I want them to eat the bad guys and we got both, <laughs> but there's something pretty wonderful about having to, you know, kind of keep your distance both as a, as a character and as an audience that makes these dinosaurs magnificent. So that being said, this scene helped sell that idea for me, even though I didn't agree with the idea, I appreciated the fact that it helped sell the idea for me. It showed me how Blue got to where she was, how Owen's connection to her was that much more genuine. It showed me that while maybe not on paper, a raptor could be empathetic towards a human, the way in which that was portrayed helped me believe that in this particular world. And so I was grateful for that. I was grateful that we got that because you're right. It really came down to being about Blue. Blue was not maybe the, she was the central idea in the movie. She was the reason why they were tasked to go to the island. Ultimately, the dinosaurs as a whole obviously were meant to be auctioned off and sold for millions of dollars, but she was the, she was the linchpin. She was the reason why Claire had to reignite whatever that system was um, to track them, the tracking system. And they needed Owen, obviously. But I thought that particular moment, uh, was was tender, and I thought it was uh, it was very sincere, as much as sincere could be in an entry like this. <laughs> well, guys, it's been a a great conversation, um, despite the fact that all three of us came away just not enjoying our movie experience. I was glad that we got a chance to talk through some of the reasons why, and and hopefully, if you're listening to this and you enjoyed it, that you don't feel discouraged because that's not our point. Our our goal is not to convince you to not enjoy the movies that you do. If you enjoy this, fantastic. And we would absolutely love to hear your thoughts uh, on these on this particular entry, especially if you loved it. And the way to do that, 
is to find us in our Facebook group. If you've not joined, please feel free to do so. That's where a lot of the conversations happen, not only for our most recent podcast episodes, but also for other movies that have come out, other movies that are coming out. It's where trailers get dropped and reactions get get shown. And it's a lot of great community and conversation that take place. So feel free to join and be a part of that. We'd love to have you if you haven't already joined. Um, if you want to talk to me specifically, you can find me on social media. I'm at Facebook and Twitter, Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. So be sure to find me on one of those two places. Aaron, what about you? Where can people find you? Find me on Twitter at F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M, Aaron, uh, or at the actual Twitter account, Feelin' Film. And you can also find me in that Facebook group being extremely active. That's what I do at least when I can from work. Next week, we have a packed schedule coming. I've alluded to some of this. On Tuesday, we will be dropping an interview with directors Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead about their new film, The Endless, and the rest of their filmography. Friday, we will have our June Donor Pick episode on Rush, as well as Movia Trivia Battle Number 4 between Patrick and I. That's going to be a bonus episode for our Patreon supporters which you can become by visiting patreon.com slash film. Jacob, it has been fantastic having you on the episode. Uh, we're hoping to have you back soon. This is a great conversation. But until then, where can people find you to keep the conversation going about this or any other things? Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you can find me. I'm very active in the, the Facebook group, the Film Film Facebook group. And I'm also on Twitter at JJ Starflyer. That's J-J-S-T-A-R-F-L-Y-E-R. All right. And you can also catch a couple of his columns that he pushes each week. Sunday nights, we have kind of a recap of what we've been watching over the last week. And you can also catch his weekly column on what you should be seeing, which is a compilation of streaming movies and whatnot that uh, you should check out. Guys, thanks for the conversation. Uh, listeners, thank you for listening. And uh, we hope you'll join us next week. Until next time, stay positive and keep feeling filled.